Morning, church. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that in your eternal plan, you designed that you would save many sons and daughters through the condescension and suffering of your eternal son. We thank you, Father, that his was such a heart that delighted to do this, that he was eager to take on human flesh and to take on the form of a servant to be humbled in this way and to to serve us, to become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we thank you, Father, that you have exalted him now at your right hand. And it has been our delight to worship him and to worship you in these last few minutes. We're grateful now, Father, for the opportunity to open the word and to consider these things further. And as we contend with hearts prone to stray from Him, prone to think of this world as all there is, we pray that You would grant us a vision for glory and that through the words that we study that we would be given a greater desire to know Him and to cling to Him as the one who has gone before us into glory secured it for us and who gets us there by granting us the power and the desire to endure until that day. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would have his way with us through his word. We pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to begin reading in verse 5. So as you find your place there, let's stand and we'll read verse 5 through the end of the chapter. Hebrews 2, 5. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the Son of Man that you care for Him. You made Him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned Him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under His feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to Him, He left nothing outside His control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. But we do see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that He helps, but He helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore He had to be made like His brothers in every respect, so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. You may be seated.
So we are jumping into the middle of a two-part message. We began last week talking about our tendency towards spiritual nearsightedness. That is, we, we tend to live as if this life is all there is. And when we find that this life is tremendously broken, well, then we look for a this-worldly Savior to, to make this world better. And that never works. It only leads to greater misery because that's not God's plan. And so the main part of our time last week was spent considering this idea that we need to maintain a vision for glory, a vision for the next life. And, and then we spent a little bit of time getting into the, the second big idea, which was that we need to cling to the one who gets us to the next life, which is Jesus. Jesus has gone before us as the pioneer of our salvation. He currently reigns in glory where we want to be. And, and that's where we're picking up this morning. In the remainder of the passage, having helped us to see that this life is not all there is, but that ultimately we, we will reign in glory, the author helps us to see why we should trust in Jesus specifically. Why we should trust in Him to get us there. So, as we move forward, we're keeping in mind everything that we saw last week. We need to maintain a vision for glory and cling to the One who gets us there. But why Jesus? Why cling specifically to Him in faith? So our first point this morning is actually the fourth point overall. He was made like us in all things as our representative brother. He was made like us in all things as our representative brother. Verse 9 last week showed that while, while we don't currently reign, Jesus does. And verse 10 showed that God desires through Christ to bring many sons to glory. And this little section from, from verse 11 to 14 indicates that Jesus is able to do this because He has become our representative brother. Look at verse 11 with me again. For He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. He who sanctifies is Jesus. And, and here sanctified means set apart unto God. Those who are sanctified are the church. More, more literally, when, when He says that they, they, uh, they all have one source... More literally, it is they are all of one. And, and the idea is that Jesus and the church, they have one Father. And if, if we just step back and, and think about this for a minute, this is insane. We, we had occasion a couple of weeks ago in adult Sunday school to think about the doctrine of adoption. You know, Jesus could have saved us without our being made sons and daughters. You Think about that. That's worth thinking about. That's worth thinking about, that we could have been justified, we could have been made righteous in Christ, and forever not be able to call God Father, not be able to call Jesus Brother. But there are all these other things that God wanted to give us that required us to have a representative brother to secure them for us. And so, we have one source, we are all of one. God is the Father of Jesus, and He is our Father. God decided that we would not merely be His people, but His children. And so He sent His eternal Son to become a man and rescue us as not just people and not subjects, but brothers and sisters. Now, jump down to verse 14. We'll skip verse 12 and 13 for just a minute, but jump to 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, talking about Jesus, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Now remember again what he's explaining, which is why Jesus is, is fit to, to, to serve as, as this, this one who gains our, our glory for us. He has gone on to glory. How is it that he's able to share this? Remember that beginning in verse 6, in, using Psalm 8, the, the author taught that it has always been God's plan for, for man to reign over all things. But sin and death prevented us from reigning in this life. Death is something that takes place in the realm of flesh and blood. You and I have flesh and blood. That's why we're able to die. 
That's the battlefield on which we were defeated. Death beat us in the realm of flesh and blood. Therefore, if we're going to have a champion, somebody that overcomes death for us, that champion, that Savior, if He's going to win the battle, He must enter that battlefield, requiring Him to take on flesh and blood. And remember that verse 9 taught that Jesus tasted death for us. He was able to do that because He was made like us in all things, including taking on flesh and blood. It was fitting for God in in bringing many sons to glory to perfect Christ through the suffering of death because God planned for Christ to save us as a representative, as one of us, our brother. He had to be one of us. That's the big idea of of this little section, verses 11 through 14. In the middle there, verses 12 and 13, we have these Old Testament quotations. And they're there because the author deduces from them several realities. He minds the Old Testament. He sees several things. First of all, that Jesus has brothers and sisters. He finds this in the Old Testament. Jesus has brothers and sisters assigned to Him by God. He finds that Jesus' work benefits His brothers and sisters because He's their representative brother And third, he finds that Jesus welcomes that whole situation. All right? Finds all of that from the Old Testament. Now look at the last part of verse 11 again. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Now that is truly significant. Before we get into these Old Testament Testament passages, it is significant that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. Why is that? Because the ancient Near East, the ancient Near East, and the modern Near East, is what we would call a shame culture. So the, the mistakes, the sins of a family member are all you need to have nothing to do with them. I mean, you would deny a father, you would deny a mother, you would deny a son, a brother, you would deny any relative who has done something that is sinful, embarrassing, anything. But Jesus, Jesus enters the world having been given by the Father, brothers and sisters that have done nothing but shameful things. And yet, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. It makes me think of of John chapter 6, where Jesus explains to the Jews, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and I will never cast them out. For I've come not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He's given me, I lose not one, but raise it up on the last day. I think also of John, John 4, 34, where Jesus says, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. When, when, when God said to the Father, Look, here, here are these people. I'm giving them to you as your brothers and sisters. Go get them. Go put on human flesh. Become one of them so that You can not only be one of them, but claim them as your own and bring them back to me to glory. Jesus said, yes, I love that and I love them. Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. And so the the, the author of Hebrews, he's about to quote Psalm 22 and Isaiah 8. Why does he do that? When the author of Hebrews looks at the Old Testament, he looks at it like the other authors of the New Testament, and he understands the Old Testament broadly to be a storyline of the overall trajectory of God's plan for salvation, and the overall trajectory of that plan is toward Jesus Christ. He's the fulfillment of all God's plan. And this storyline includes direct promises fulfilled in Christ, It contains direct prophecies fulfilled in Christ and types for which Christ is the antitype. And when we use the word type, we we simply mean something like a shadow that that looks like Jesus or a picture that resembles Him that He ends up being, being the substance of. And it's not that when the Old Testament, I'm sorry, the New Testament writers read the Old Testament. It's not that they're reading Christ into the Old Testament, but they're reading Him out of the Holy Spirit-inspired meaning of the Old Testament. So remember, when we, when we studied chapter 1 in Hebrews, we saw that, that there, there was this 
many times and in many ways in the prophets' word of God. So God spoke in the Old, in the Old Testament many times, many ways, through the prophets. Now He's spoken in Christ in these recent days. And, and we talked about how there is continuity and discontinuity between these, the, these two ways and times of, of God speaking. Meaning there are connections and disconnections. And, and I encouraged you that, that a way to conceive of how this works is that it's something like a puzzle depicting a skyscape filled with hot air balloons being continuous with and discontinuous with the actual experience of being in one of those balloons. In that way, the, the New Testament in Christ Salvation in Christ is, is like and dislike everything that is said in the Old Testament. The New Testament salvation in Christ, it, it is forecast dimly in many different ways, constantly and repeatedly in the Old Testament. And it's quite common then for the, Old, sorry, for the New Testament authors to see one of these little pieces in the Old Testament and say, yes, that is forecasting something about the fullness of salvation in Jesus Christ. And so the, the, the author of Hebrews is looking back into the Old Testament and he's seeing things, seeing small little pieces that are forecasting truths about Jesus Christ. He's bringing them into chapter 2 here. And one of those is in verse 12 where he says, he quotes, he quotes Psalm 22, but he quotes it as if Jesus is saying it. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Now that's a Davidic psalm, Psalm 22, wherein the experience of David, it so parallels the later experience of Christ that, that, that this psalm is widely considered to be the most potently messianic psalms in the Old Testament. In fact, I'd encourage you to read it this afternoon and see if you don't agree that, that, that this just pictures Jesus over and over and over. David's experience as he's writing this, it so foreshadows things that happen in Jesus' life that it is perfectly described as messianic. It's the psalm that begins with the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is that ringing a bell? There are two halves to this psalm. The first half is very dark. It's all about suffering. And in that half, you read about the suffering of David which forecasts suffering of Christ. The second half is all about the glory that comes in the aftermath of being saved from that suffering. The author of Hebrews has quoted the transitional verse, the, the, the verse that, that swings from suffering to glory. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And of course, we know that David did that. In fact, many of his psalms represent him doing that very thing. He's proclaiming to all God's people what God has done in saving him. We see Jesus doing the very same thing in John chapter 20. Just after Jesus has been raised from the dead, he goes and tells, and, and tells the women at the tomb, Go and tell my brothers that I'm about to go before them into Galilee. So the author of Hebrews, he sees the life of David as a type of the life of Christ. And so he quotes this verse as words of Jesus indicating that Jesus has brothers. And not only that, if you read the rest of the psalm, you'll find that his salvation, the salvation of Jesus Christ from the dead, leads to life for his brothers and sisters. Now look at verse 13. And again, I'll put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children that God has given me. Now, this reads as if it's two different quotations. It actually comes from two, two successive verses in Isaiah chapter 8. And again, why, why is he quoting Isaiah 8? Well, I won't go deep into the original context other than to say that these words were originally spoken by Isaiah himself of Isaiah's experience. Isaiah was saying, I put my trust in God. And Isaiah was saying, Behold, I and the children God has given me. And so if, if you want to familiarize yourself with that context, I, I would suggest that you back up to Isaiah 7 and read through Isaiah 9. Not just Isaiah 8, but read those three chapters very closely. But the principle of interpretation that the author of Hebrews is using to apply that piece of Scripture to Jesus 
is the same as the principle of interpretation that he uses to bring Psalm 22 into this context. The historical situation lived by Isaiah so parallels what God has done in Christ that it qualifies as a type and therefore is something of an indirect prophecy so that the author can mine from it parallels the end of which is that Jesus trusted the Lord and delivered him from trusted the Lord to deliver him from death and this this idea that God has entrusted to Jesus children so the, the, the author of Hebrews, he looks back into the Old Testament and he sees these things and he's bringing them in here and he's saying, look, Jesus forecast indirectly through these indirect prophecies, see, he has been entrusted by God with children. And so the big picture, the main thrust of the author's use of these Old Testament quotations is that Jesus is eager to be made like us in all things as our representative brother. And not only that, but these Old Testament quotations show that his heart is to bring his brothers and sisters to the Father, to proclaim the name of the Father to them so that they will trust the Father as he has. Jesus is our representative brother. And that makes it possible for him to then share his rule with us and to bring us to glory. This is one of the reasons that that you should trust him. This is what the author of Hebrews is getting at. He took on all things human so that he could share with us all things heaven. Fifth, through death, he defeated the devil and freed us from the fear of death. He defeated the devil and freed us from the fear of death. Verse 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now, notice first of all that he says that the devil has the power of death. One, One commentator has correctly noted that the devil has not always, he, he, he's not like inherently possessed the power of death, just like by virtue of his existence, but he gained that power when he deceived man into rebelling against God. Remember back in, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, God proclaimed to Adam in the garden, he said, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. By by enticing man to sin, the devil lured him into death. And in that, all men have inherited the propensity to sin. All men have inherited death. And in that sense, the devil holds the power of death over men. John Owen wrote this. All of Satan's power over death was founded on sin. The obligation of the sinner to death gave Satan his power. If the obligation to death was removed, then Satan's power would also be taken away. In other words, if the penalty of death for if the penalty of death for sin was destroyed, then also would be the power of the devil overthrown. And that's what the author of Hebrews means here by destroying the devil. The word destroy in verse 14 can also be translated overthrown. So He's he's overthrowing the devil by destroying the power of death. Jesus did that very thing by killing death and the sin that leads to it. So we, we might wonder, how exactly did Jesus accomplish this? How did he destroy death? How did he take care of sin? Well, we know from, from Romans that the wages of sin is death. The, the reason that, that death is necessary is as a penalty for sin. So, Jesus had to deal with sin. He, he did that in that all the sin, and, and th- think, think about just you now. Think about just all your sin, okay? Could, 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 could you even fit that in this room? All the sin, not just your sin, but all the sin of all God's people was placed upon this, this one man, 
this representative brother, Jesus Christ, on the cross, and he died for it there. In, in other words, the penalty for sin was paid in Jesus Christ. Not just all the sins committed before the cross, but all sin, past, present, and future. All the sins that you have done, all the sins that you are doing, all the sins that you will do, Jesus paid for them in an afternoon. Completely paid for. That's, that's how He paid for this. That's how He dealt with the sin. And in dealing with the sin, He dealt with the death. He defeated death itself by killing the sin and by being raised from the dead. So, he, he died on the cross and God raised him from the dead. Acts 2.24 says that God raised him from the dead because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Through death, Jesus destroyed death. And he thereby overthrew the one who has the power of death. So the resurrection then means for us all our sin paid for and death no more. There's a second benefit, though. We are freed from the fear of death. Anybody ever been afraid to die? All of us have been at one point. In fact, it's a characteristic of of humanity in his fallen state. Man was created to rule the world for God, but, but rather man has been subject to lifelong slavery to the fear of death. Death hangs over our heads all our lives. And, and, and if you look at, at the, the pagans of this world, they, they are constantly trying to deal with this fear of death. And, and broadly, there are two ways that, that, that they do this. One is to pull out all the stops to prolong this life as much as they possibly can. Just I, I don't want to die. I've got to do everything I can to not die. Now, l- now listen, certainly there's nothing wrong at all with wanting to be healthy as long as it is motivated by, by a desire to be a good steward for the one who gave us this life. But, but, but some people do it in order to have hope. Because remember what we talked about last, last time. Many people in this world, and, and, and some of us even, Think of this world as all there is. And for, for the, those outside of Christ, the, the, those who are, are in that pagan world, longevity is the name of the game. So that's, that's one way of dealing with the fear of death. The other way of dealing with the fear of, of death is to just shove as many explosively pleasurable experiences into this life as possible because you only live once. So... People try to either put off death or they try to go out with a bang. But the problem is that neither one of those things address death's inevitability. Those don't address it. But our representative brother does. Jesus frees us. Don't you find it interesting that that, that He makes a distinction here? Jesus Jesus frees us from death and He frees us from the fear of death. In other words, He makes it possible to live this life with no fear of dying. We can live without that fear. If you were here last week, you'll recall that I read at the very end of the message from Philippians chapter 3 where Paul is considering his own death. You remember that passage, Philippians 3, 10-ish to the end of the chapter? Now, in Philippians chapter 3, does Paul sound like he's afraid of death? Does this sound like a guy that's, man, I'm just not sure about this? Not at all. He doesn't sound that way anywhere in Philippians at all. There's not a, a whiff of fear or dread in that man anywhere in Philippians. He's able to give all to Christ. He's able to give every shred of himself to Jesus in this life without fear of missing out, without fear of dying young, because Paul knows we don't only live once. We don't. And, and he, he is able to say, look for me to live as Christ, to die is gain. And, and, and that truth is 
That is what you say when there is no fear of death. And, and our representative brother bought that for us through his own death. So removal of the one who held the power of death and also removal of the fear of death all because of Jesus' own death for us for which he was qualified by the fact that he took on all things human to become one of us, to become our representative brother. This is why he should be trusted. He defeats the barrier between man and eternal life. Nobody else does that. Six, his work benefits those of faith. His work benefits those of faith. Verse 16, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Now, this reference to angels reminds us, oh yeah, this isn't, this isn't just an academic Christological exercise here. He's not just doing systematic theology, but there's, there's a, a, a real life situation that's being dealt with. Remember that the main thrust of this book is to persuade the reader not to succumb to the pressures of this world. Not to lose heart, not to shrink back from faithful discipleship, but to continue to cling to Christ, trusting in Him until the end. Remember what this reference to angels is all about. Some of the original recipients were were tempted to revert to Old Covenant Judaism as mediated by angels. And so the, the author has been putting angels in their rightful place in the eyes of the of the reader. Chapter 1, Jesus is way better than the angels. And as much as He is better than them, chapter 2, His message deserves much more attention than theirs. And, and beginning in 2.5 and following, He is, is reminded them that, look, it is not to angels that God has subjected the world to come, but He subjected it to you, believer. He subjected it to you. So don't hitch your wagon to angels. Of course, he acknowledges that sin and death got in the way of man's reign over all things. And here he's saying, he's saying to that end that, that, remember, you're supposed to reign, but you're not reigning. It wasn't angels that, that, that Jesus helps to get to that place of reigning over all things, but it's the sons of Abraham that Jesus helps to get to the place of reigning over all things. So verse 16 connects to verse 5. Jesus helps you, because you are the one that he, has, that he has designed to reign over all things. But in particular, he uses this, an interesting phrase for man. He, he takes the category of man and he shrinks it down to sons of Abraham. So a key question, perhaps the most important question of the morning, who are the sons of Abraham? There was a time in salvation history when that question likely would have been answered, the Jews, because they are the literal descendants of Abraham. But the fullness of God's revelation has shown that God in Christ has created a single people for Himself, the church, composed of believing Jews and believing Gentiles. He's reconciled them both in one body, in Christ, to the Father. Listen to Galatians chapter 3, verses 7-9. through nine. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then... Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Who are the sons of Abraham? They are those, who, those, those of faith, those who believe. Those who believe what or in whom? Those who believe in Christ. That's the whole point of the book of Galatians. And there are cross-references teaching that same thing in Romans chapter 4, verses 9-18. through 18, Romans 4, 9-18. through 18, And Ephesians 2, 12-22. The great applicational value of this verse at, at, at this point in Hebrews is, is, hey, look, given everything that's been said about Jesus, trust in Jesus. I mean, that, that's why I say right here, sons of Abraham and not just man. Just so that there's, there's, there's no confusion. 
it's not just that He helps man in general. He helps the sons of Abraham. He helps those who trust in Him. Trust in Jesus. And to the believer reading this, who may be, who may be tempted to shrink back from faith in Christ, the, 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 the exhortation is, look, rehearse all these things that you know to be true about Jesus, about His person and His work. Rehearse all these things like it's your passion in life. He, he has taken on flesh and blood. He's embraced you as, as His brothers and sisters. He's tasted death to defeat the one who had the power of death so that you might no, no, no longer fear death. And knowing all of that, trust Him. Trust Him. And this, this trust in Jesus Christ is not merely a thing of the past. Notice, notice that verb in, in verse 16. This is a present tense verb. He helps. The, the, the Greek word super literally is he latches onto. He grabs. It's not angels that Jesus that Jesus holds onto, latches onto. That Jesus grabs. It's not angels. It's the believing, and believing is also present tense. It's not angels that Jesus is now holding onto. It is those who are now believing in Jesus. That we we we, we may. We may struggle with, with how to conceive rightly of the benefit right now on this date in July 2023 from what Jesus did so long ago. We know, we, we, we may think, look, I, I know what He did so long ago that it is going to benefit me a long time in the future. That's how I conceive of it. What he did way back then, it's going to do me a lot of good a long time in the future, but I have a hard time conceiving of what it, what it does for me right now. He's done his part, and we believed in order to benefit from that work someday down the road, but that transaction is over. And now he's in glory. We're separated from him. He did a great work. We're thankful for it. But now, now it's, it's our job. We, we just bite on the proverbial stick until we get to him. The, ch- the church age represents this, this great chasm in time where Jesus is retired and we just have to muscle our way to glory. That may be how we think of it. And we should, we should look then at this verse and understand that no, it's not to angels that Jesus present tense clings, but to those who present tense believe. Trust in Jesus now, the one who right now serves you. That's, that's where he's going in these next couple of verses. And, and, it's, and it is a thing that he wants to impart in the rest of the book. Yeah, Jesus has done all kinds of work in the past, but he has an ongoing ministry to you. Jesus serves us even now. His being made like us qualified him to redeem us and situated him to help us right now. And we, this brings us to our, our final point here. His priesthood uniquely situates him to help us until that day. His priesthood uniquely situates him to help us until that day. Verses 17 and 18. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and and faithful high priest in service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So we've got verse 17. We're going to talk about that first, and we'll talk about verse 18. And verse 17 is, is, is a bit of this, this stuff that we tend to, we, we, we plant it in the past, and it's got no benefit for us in the future. So let, let, let's think about all of that. The word therefore at the beginning of verse 17, it signals that we're moving into something like a conclusion of this whole section that we've just been in. And so what we're going to see is some, 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 some things that we've already looked at in crystallized form. And paramount is that Jesus has been made like us in all respects. And this enabled him to serve as a merciful and faithful high priest. Do you remember what a high priest does? We just spent all of that time in Leviticus. What does a high priest do? He brings people into fellowship with God. 
And God has selected Jesus as the definitive high priest, bringing many sons into His glory. And His priesthood does two things that we find here. And the first is that He makes propitiation for the sins of the people. And what that means is that that He satisfies the wrath of God by offering a sacrifice for sin. And, And of course we know what the author is going to make very clear later on, that the the offering that Jesus offered was the offering of Himself. Jesus' own death on the cross satisfied the wrath of God for the sins of those who trust in Christ. Now we could say of, of, of that, what we've already said, which is that in Christ's finished work, He has secured His rule and His glory for us. So Jesus is already in glory. He's secured it for us. And we're going to be there someday. But remember, we've got this thing that we tend to suffer with, which is, okay, that's fantastic, but I need help right now. And the author closes this section with, with the right now helpful thing. This crucial implication of Christ's priesthood. Crucial for those who desperately need to endure to the end, which is every one of us. And here's that implication. Christ, He he is securing not only glory for us, but He is securing us for glory, helping us to endure to the end. See, Christ's suffering has prepared Him to be a blessing to us right now. We talked about this a little bit last week, but we're going to go back into it and expound on it a little bit. Jesus was tempted during that incredible suffering that He endured. So as He was being proven pure to suffer on the cross, as He was being shown to be that perfect Lamb of God, sinless so that He might take our sins upon Him, and so that His his sacrifice would be pleasing to the Lord, as He's doing that, His temptation and His Suffering in temptation, all of that was preparing Him to be a benefit for us. So Jesus knows not only what it's like to suffer, Jesus knows not only what it's like to be beaten, but He knows what it's like to endure temptation in the midst of suffering. He knows what it's like to be confronted with the prospect of an easier way than the current path that has been laid out for you, right? Haven't we all had a, had a path laid out for us called discipleship? And don't we hear voices around us all the time suggesting to us, hey, there's an easier way. There's an easier way. Take this fork in the road. Take that fork in the road. Follow this Savior. Follow that Savior. Do this. Do that. Jesus heard all that nonsense. He heard it all, and He heard it during the worst suffering that anyone has ever endured. And He came through it completely unscathed. He obeyed perfectly through the midst of all that. You remember Pilate suggesting to Jesus, look, you've got to defend yourself. You've got to get yourself out of this mess. You just say the word and I'll spring you from this trap. Jesus didn't take the bait. Jesus is on the cross. He's got, he's got thieves on either side of Him. The guys, they're in the same situation as Him. He is, and they're taunting Him. They're saying, hey, get yourself out of this. Get us out of this and prove to everybody who you are. Don't you think if you were in that situation, that would seem like a great idea? That would seem like the best idea in the world. Jesus didn't take the bait. Of course, then He's got all the mockers on the ground. All these, 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 these Jewish leaders who have, who have been taunting him and they have, they have been something of a thorn in his side throughout his ministry and there they are saying these same kinds of things. Look, prove it. If you, if you just come down, we'll believe. That would have sounded like the best idea in the world to you and me. Jesus didn't take the bait He stayed the course. He remained faithful to God. He secured our salvation. And what's more is that He is now able by that experience to help us when we endure similar temptation. Similar temptation to take a road that we are not supposed to take. 
we suffer the, the difficulty of discipleship, losing sight of glory. We hear those voices telling us, take this easier path. Take, take this way of coping with pain that doesn't coincide with what God has designed for you. Perhaps like the, the serpent in the garden, voices tempting us to doubt God altogether. Who could possibly be better to help us through that, to help us to endure to the end than our brother, our Savior, who's been through the worst of that in all of history. It is, it is, it is not just, this is what we need to keep in mind here, it is not just that Jesus is able to give good advice. It is, it is not just that Jesus, Jesus is able to come alongside us and say, just do what I did. Jesus comes inside us and empowers us with His Holy Spirit to do what He did. Who else are you going to trust? By His resurrection, He gives us His resurrection power on board through the indwelling of His Spirit to enable us to endure as He did. What a brother. God created us to rule over His creation as His representatives. By our rebellion, we lost that to sin and death. But Christ shares His rule with us as His brothers and sisters by securing that rule for us and by securing us for it. And listen, you do not want to turn away from this brother. You want to run to him. You, you, you want to walk daily with him. You, you want to treat his word like the one kind of food that you cannot do without. That's the sustenance you must have because it feeds your faith in him. You, you want to learn Him. As you inevitably share in His suffering, you want to share in His power and His fruit through His Spirit by submitting to Him. You want to be conformed to His image by meaningful interaction with His people. If, if you want to endure to the end and enter His glory, you want to be all about this representative brother who gets you there. You cannot afford, you cannot afford a casual relationship with Jesus Christ. And some of you may feel like that's exactly what you've got. If that, you may feel like you've got a very tenuous grasp on daily fellowship with Him. A way to be helped in that. A, be, a way to be helped to be more consistent, to be deeper in that, is to, to meet with someone regularly to read the Bible and pray. And I know we elders just sound like a broken record on this. But there's a reason that we recommend it. It, it. it isn't a magic pill, but it helps you as you both encourage one another to move closer to Christ, to engage in His Word, as you pray together, as you encourage one another to pray privately in your own lives, as you're holding one another accountable. There is a reason that the author of Hebrews in chapter 10, just before the final warning of the book, there's a reason that he calls on the recipients of this book to meet with one another for the purpose of stirring one another up to love and good works. It's because it works. It works. And that's why we put it before you all the time. We're going to see something similar in, in chapter 3 next week, Lord willing. The, the, the author's going to, to encourage us to come alongside one another daily to the end that we are trusting in Christ and not hardened against Christ. If you've grown cold in your affections for the Lord, if you're, if you're having trouble finding traction in your personal devotions, find somebody to walk with you. You'll be a benefit to them as well. Now, if, if you need help finding someone, ask one of the elders. We would be happy to assist you in that. Ask somebody else to help you find somebody. Just get it done because it will be a benefit to you. Glory awaits and it has been subjected to you. 
Christ has gone ahead of you as, as the pioneer of that glory. He's been made like you in all things so that His journey would be that of a representative brother opening the way for all who trust in Him. He is perfectly equipped to see you through the travails of this life until His return. So, cling to Him in faith. Let's pray. Father, there are so many things about which we could revel in these moments. That Christ has died for us, that He has died for us, that we could be your sons and daughters, that He has died for us as our brother and we His his brothers and sisters, that He even now desires to serve us through his, his continuing ministry to us to help us endure this so much. We, we pray, Father, that you would grant us to, to meditate on these things. And having done that, that we would live in light of them. We pray, Father, that the, the things of this world that would cause us to have our attention diverted from glory and from Christ, that, that those things would, would fall away that those voices would become inaudible to us compared to the, the, the glorious sound of the gospel in our ears preached to one another and to ourselves. Father, if, if, if there are among us those who are not walking closely with the Lord Jesus, clinging to Him, we pray that You would bring to bear such means as, as necessary to, to draw them close to Christ. We pray, Father, that, that everyone in this place would, would get involved with another believer so that we would stir one another up to love and good works until the Lord Jesus comes, understanding that, that we must cling to Him. Grant us hearts just filled with, with wonder and thanksgiving at what He has done to hold on to us. Father, we thank You that these things are true and we ask that You would grant us to live in light of them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.